So chapter 24, verse 1 of Leviticus says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And... You shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows of six on a pure table before the Lord in that pure table. And you shall put the pure frankincense on each row that it may be on the bread for memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath, he, that of course would be Aaron, shall set it in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. So as I mentioned, this is Aaron and some of his duties, responsibilities as the high priest of Israel. There's only one high priest at this time, and these are his responsibilities. Now, Reviewing that tabernacle and what goes on in there, remember the tabernacle is about 50 yards long, so half a football field, but not as wide. It's rectangular. So it's the length, but not the width. And essentially two-thirds are the holy place, and then the back third essentially is the holy of holies. And throughout the priestly duties, the priests would go in and out of the tabernacle, the holy place, and they would go indoors, and they had those three essential things, the altar of incense, the lamp, and the showbread, which all point to Christ. And then the veil separated that portion from the other portion, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was with the Ten Commandments. Of course, everything's gold in there, and that's separated. And if you recall, when we studied Yom Kippur a couple weeks ago, Day of Atonement, once a year, Aaron, or whoever was the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies, first to offer the blood for his own sins, and then a second time for the sins of the people. And thus you have the scapegoat, the one scapegoat is sacrificed, that's the scapegoat's blood. The other scapegoat, they confess the sins, and off the scapegoat into the wilderness, represented by our sins being removed from us as far as east is from the west, what Jesus did for us on the cross. All these things point toward Christ, their shadows of things to come, which is Christ. So now... With that background, of course, the altar was outside of that where they do the main sacrifices all day long in the tabernacle area outside in the courtyard. So in this timeline, for the next almost 40 years, Aaron is going to have this responsibility. This is a career job, all right? So we've already seen the the high priesthood. Once a year, we talk about this, once a year, he's going to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. He's the only guy that's doing that. When he passes away, Eliezer, his son, does it. And then his grandson takes the mantle from him. And eventually, Phineas becomes the high priest who does it. And then all the subsequent high priests. It's just successionary. And for 1,500 years, this is how God did it before Christ came. And we've covered how so much it represents Jesus Christ, the priesthood of what they did, particularly the high priest, because we're told Jesus is our great high priest, whoever lives and intercedes for us before the presence of the Father. And we can come boldly in time of need because we have such a great high priest who can relate to us in all things that we go through. But this is Aaron. He's like us. He would offer the blood once a year for sins and then for the people. But on a weekly basis, this is what he did. So this is job description. Now, many of you, 
when you get a new job, you get like orientation. My son Timothy works with Broderick now for Raul Diaz, our former youth pastor, with their gas company. They, they sell gas to fleets of trucks and they service them. And when Timmy was hired, after the COVID thing stepped back a little bit and he began to work, he got orientation. You know, like he did all the interviews, Raul walking through stuff, Broderick showed him stuff. He got acclimated with the San Diego place and then the place up here at Buena Park, I think it is. And he, you know, you get orientated. When you get a new job, you go through orientation. If you go to work for Starbucks, when Tim, excuse me, when Luke went to work for Starbucks, he had like two or three days of like orientation before he started to work at Starbucks. It's a whole process. This is how you do the drinks. This is how you do this. This is that. You never do this to the customer, and you definitely do that, okay? So you get orientation. Often in a school year, a teacher will get up and say, I'm your new teacher. Welcome to third grade, right? Or fourth grade, whatever. And they'll say, this is how I am. This is what we expect. And you have to meet the teacher with the parents. And it's orientation. I always remember when I actually got a real job uh, after being a pro surfer for all those years, and I went to Vermont and I had to work in the, the Sheraton Hotel. I always remember I had two days of orientation. We sat in a theater, and I got to learn all the history about the Sheraton Hotel and all of its wonderful shit. It made me excited to work for Sheraton. I'm like, yeah, it's a pretty good corporation. It's definitely better than the Hyatt down the street. You know, like, I want to work for Sheraton. I'm a Sheraton guy, right? And they sold me. That's part of what orientation is. It, it equips you for your job, what you're going to do. Here's your job description. Like, all right, let's go. Well, that's what this is. This is God saying to Moses, now pull your brother aside. And this is telling what his job is. This is what he's going to do for me for the next. Well, Aaron never made it to the promised land. So he did this in all types of changing environment for some 38 years. Think about this. Wherever they went, whenever the Jews moved in the wilderness, they packed up the tabernacle. So whenever they moved out, they're like a million people moving. You know, like, you just moved four kids on a family vacation in a family van in the 90s. That's a major accomplishment. We drove across country many times with our kids to do different things with four kids. And you always forget something. You forget someone's pacifier or binky. You forgot the diapers there. You left the socks in the drawer in the hotel in Niagara Falls. And, you know, like, it's a process. It's a million people. And the central place of worship was the tabernacle. So when they would move out, It all began with them. So Aaron and his family, the Kohathites under the Levites, their subdivision, they're the ones, they pack up the ark, the incense, all this stuff, and they carried it on the poles of the shoulders. Everyone else, they got the wheels, the wheelbarrows, the the wagons. The rest of the Levites, the Kohathites and Marites, excuse me, uh, they would, the the Marites, they would load it all up on their stuff, and out they would go. Then the camps, when we get to numbers, we'll see this. Each camp, so there's a quarter, there's three tribes this way, three this way, three and three. They would go in order and pack up. So they'd pack up their banners, pack up the tents, and they'd roll out like, a, like the 1st Marine Division. Like 100,000 troops going to war in the South Pacific. Something. It's a very efficient thing, but only they're like a million people. So when Aaron fulfilled this job. We need the context. When he did this job, he did it at Sinai. Then he did it here when they got to Kadesh Barina, when they all rejected God's plan to go into the promised land. He still had to show up and change the showbread once a week. He still had to do what he had to do. Keep the olive oil burning. Keeping your lamp trimmed and burning, as Daryl Mansfield used to sing. He had to keep doing that. So when everyone unbelieves, and it's a death march now, and all the people over 20 who are dying, he still has to go to work. Kids are being born in the wilderness wandering when they can't pass through here and they got to go there and they got to do this and that. For decades, he still went to work surrounded by people of unbelief and did his job, which wasn't just his job, it was his calling, which is what we want to talk about tonight. Because 
If we think things are wonky, as we said Tuesday night, right now in America and on this planet, think how wonky it was to be doing this job day after day, week after week in the wilderness on a death march for three plus decades with people, surrounded by people in unbelief, trying to see the next generation raised up to be a triumphant generation that would enter into the promised land. That's when he was employed by the Lord. That's when he was called by the Lord to do these things. And by the way, the term wonky is actually a surf term. It's a description when the ocean's really unstable, like high tide backwash, and it's, it's like this, and you're trying to surf. It's like, it's like, dude, it's so wonky. Like, it's a surf term. It's like it needs the tide to change. It needs the wind to clean it up or something. It just, it's just wonky out there. In Hawaii, it would often be wonky in the morning, then the trade winds would blow. It'd clean up the surf. It'd get really good with the right wind direction. It'd be no more wonky. And when I've thought about this year, it's wonky. Like, it's just literally like when you're in Newport and super high tide and you're paddling, the wave's coming back at you from the backwash. Like, that is really wonky. It's been really wonky. But we still are alive, and God still has work for us to do. And the fact that we're alive is indicative that God has work for us to do, whether we're 90 like my father in assisted living or we're John and being raised by the parents to be prepared for the work that God has for him. Because we're told when we come to Christ, we're his workmanship. So we're a work of art. We're a unique work of art. And there's no work of art like us. So we work. But when we work with the Lord, which is when we give our life to the Lord, it's a calling. So there's two reasons to be alive. One, to be saved, to come to a saving faith. And once we're saved, to enter into the purpose of our life as a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ. And what we see from Aaron here is he was called, but in that calling, there's a work. And he's set apart. I want to point out a couple things for us tonight to think about for our lives. Because as I teach this study, I have a lot of context. Just in this last week, thinking of my brother, who's 61, excuse me, 62. He has worked his entire life. The day he graduated high school, my brother moved out of the house in Carlsbad. And he worked in the flower business and worked his way up to being a manager and making millions of dollars and working up in Watsonville and all this stuff. My brother's been high, he's been low, and he's always been employed. My brother has never not worked in the flower business from the time he was 17. COVID happened, and he lost his job. He was working in Ventura, really good job. They had 200-plus employees. Everyone got let go except the one guy that was the boss of everybody. My brother was number two. He was the backup quarterback, and he got let go. And he's not been rehired. So the first time in his life, he's taken unemployment. First time ever. And he deserves it because he's, he's paid a lot into taxes and unemployment. So for the first time in his life, and he says, you know, Joe, it's really hard to get a job when you're 62 right now. No one, yeah. Can I get a witness? Like, no one wants to hire you. I mean, you can work at Walmart for 15 bucks an hour and grab, grab the grocery carts, which is a safety net plan for me. Or work at a coffee shop. That's not a bad gig. That's a good gig. But like you're not going to have. For my brother. Who once owned multiple homes in Carmel and Monterey. And he's just trying to figure out what he's going to do. For the next three or four years. Moving toward social security and stuff like that. My sister-in-law. Great employee. Super hard worker. For the last decade, she's organized special events in major hotels in San Diego, the convention center type of stuff. They bring in these big groups, and she's been extremely successful. She owns property in San Diego County. She had great jobs. She's unemployed. 
And so she, too, has been receiving unemployment. She's without a job. And then yesterday, I was in the water in Huntington. I started talking to a guy who said he's been unemployed since COVID. He worked for PacSun. He said he had a job for 10 years. He used to work for Quicksilver. And he said he's had a great job with PacSun in the corporate office. And he said, they're done. Terminar, done. No more PacSun, all of it, gone. Gone, forever gone. His job's gone. And we're just talking, we're together, and the surf was really good. We're just laughing, like it's like the first normal day since COVID. Sky's out, it's September, combination swell. It's like what surfers live for. And it's like, dude, it's you and me. Let's talk, you know? And we're just talking. And he said, I don't even know what I'm gonna do with my life right now. So when we think about Aaron and his job and his responsibilities and his calling, and I think about it in my own life, talking to my brother, watching my sister-in-law this week say goodbye to her father, and talking to a random surfer out in the water, which surfers do when there's a lull and you're the only two guys on the peak, I realize this text is so prevalent for all of us. Thinking about kids going back to school, he said, my daughter goes back to school Wednesday. I think it's Wednesday. I'm not sure. It was like Tuesday or Wednesday. Calvert Middle School, whatever. You know, like, we're just so excited. My, my daughter's going to go back to school, right? Like, this is our world. This is what we're all living in right now on all levels. So you think of the death march with Aaron and having to do his job, and I think, well, wherever we're going, we still have a calling and we still have a job to do, each one of us. And this is, with this context, I just want to bring forth a couple really simple thoughts for us tonight to realize we are in all this. We are in this together. You hear that all the time, but when you say it with the church, it means it goes a little deeper because our hope is heaven. And again, watching someone I love step into eternity this last week, I could triumphantly stand before them, jump up and down and point to them which way Jesus was coming from and that they're going to glory before me and I'll see them later. They're just catching the early flight. I'm catching the later flight. God calls us by name. Verse three, God calls us by name. We need to be reminded for such a time as this from the youngest to the oldest in this room. Listen to me right now. Listen to me, please. God calls us by name. If there's one thing that we know in the Bible that God has revealed about himself is he is incredibly personal with each and every one of us. Our DNA, who we are, we're just completely different than anyone else. He doesn't get you know, Devin Molina and Joy Brand confused, right? Or any of us. He, he, we're all distinct and different. Even if we're identical twins, we are distinct and different. God does not get us lost somewhere out in the universe somewhere. He knows the hairs on our head, and he knows everything about us from the point of conception to this very moment. God is personal. God is deliberate and absolute in each of our lives and who we are and what he has for us. He knows my name. There's a worship song that says that. He knows my name, right? He knows your name. I was thinking about dedicating John tonight. I was thinking it was John the Baptist, right? Like Zacharias can't talk to like, well, you aren't you going to call him? He's like, his name is John. You know, like, he knows my name. Abram, you're Abraham. Jacob, you're Israel. Simon, from now on, you'll be called Peter. Like, he knows our name, and he, sometimes he changes our name. Sarah, you're Sarah, princess of God. He knows our name. 
When you look back, when, I, when my wife shares her testimony about all the things that God did in her life before she ever gave life to Christ, it's amazing how she randomly taught VBS at a Methodist church. How does a high schooler who's raised in an atheistic family end up teaching VBS at a Methodist church in Encinitas in some summer in the 80s? He knows her name. She used to go to Calvary Chapel on North Coast when it was on Vulcan Square before Mark Foreman was the pastor there in Encinitas, and she liked to go to sing praise songs. How does she show up at church singing praise songs at Calvary Chapel? He knows my name. Moses says, you tell Aaron, that's his name. And I think it's just so crucial when I think of my brother and my sister and Ross, the surfer in the water, that we need to understand that God is very personal and deliberate in our lives. He doesn't just randomly say, well, you know, it's not like Starbucks if they got to go down the checklist of who they really wanted to hire. And, you know, first choice, second choice, third choice, and they end up like, well, this is the only guy left, and they still qualify, so we're going to hire them. It's not like that with the Lord. Or even in some jobs right now, they're offer people jobs, but because unemployment still might pay more than, than working, some people are turning down jobs still, which that won't be a good ending, of course, if you think that one through. But you just, it goes down the list. But it's not like that with the Lord. I think of the book of Jeremiah when God said to Jeremiah and called him to a work. He was, you're going to rip up, you're going to build up, you're going to build up, you're going to tear down. He was called, called to a work, because this is work. We're talking about robotit, work in Russian, trabajo in Spanish, and work as we all understand it. We're talking about work. This is, this is his job. His job description, we've had orientation, this is what he does, and this is his job. And there's work to be done, but it's a calling. See, we don't have some meaningless Job, we're a cog in the wheel with Jesus Christ. Whatever we do, it has absolute purpose and deliberate from the Lord. And whether it seems insignificant or extremely profound, it is His plan in our life as we're walking with Him. Because it always be He meets us where we're at, and wherever we're at, He's working in that right then and there within us, and then to move us toward what He has. It's like all those Billy Graham movies with worldwide pictures. The person gets saved, a Billy Graham crusade, and it it shows how God met them where they're at. And met him right there, like the mall. You are here. This is your name. And now we're going to go over to Foot Locker or whatever. I'm going to take you where we're going, but I'm meeting you where we're starting. That's what God does. He knows our name. It's a calling with a work. See, that's the, that's the thing here. Because people without the Lord in business, government, whatever they do, it's work. And they die and they leave it behind. But people with the Lord, it's a calling. It's work that's part of the calling. And has eternal value, and he knows our name. And so back to Jeremiah, when God was calling him as a youth, because he said, don't say you're a youth as an excuse. Before I knew you, I formed in the womb. Like, I ordained you a prophet before you were even formed in the womb. It's a powerful verse for, obviously, uh, the sanctity of life. Before he was a single soul in his mother's womb, God said, I, I knew you, I knew what I had for you, I ordained you this and that. So when you read the whole book of Jeremiah, that was his work and was his calling, God said at the very beginning, no excuses, I've raised you up for this time. Jeremiah, this is what you're going to do. And your dad, yeah, he was a priest, but you, you're a prophet. That's your work. Dad was a priest, that was his work, you're a prophet. I've ordained you a prophet to the nations before you're even born, before you're conceived. And he has a work for you. And whether you're doing Zoom school, in-person school, whether you're going away to college and you're the only one in your dorm, which is the case in some cases, <laughs> you're doing online school on your campus 
with professors who are right down the way, but you can't go in the classroom with them. And you're in a dorm all by yourself. That's just like really. But you know what? He knows your name in that dorm. And he has a work for you in that dorm and on that Zoom and on that online class. When we belong to the Lord, that work is the calling. And it's personal. In all this craziness, we don't want to lose track of the fact that the Lord is absolutely, deliberately, purposely personal in our lives. He refers to Aaron three times in this text. It's Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. And I'll move on from this with this thought. Back in John 15, when Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And when you look at the book of Acts and the apostles and the early church and all those people that responded to the message, and we see that we're the extension of that, we're reminded that he knows our name. And we didn't choose him. He chose us. And he chose us to bear fruit. And in all the wonkiness, where we're like in the woods, and it's dark, and we know which way is north, Jesus is north. He'll always be north, like I've been saying. He's never going to change north because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So all the things changing, all the crazy things coming at us. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he knows our name. So as we abide in him, we're going to bear the fruit of the work of the calling. Because he chose us to bear fruit. And of course, if you read the rest of the passage, the fruit is love. So in all the craziness, we can follow Jesus and keep on loving. That's... That's the game plan. But he knows our name. And just when I read this text and I see Aaron and he, he's going to be in charge of it all. He's, he's the shift lead. He's in charge. He's going to be in charge of this. And he's going to do this with the bread on the Sabbath. He's going to go in on this day and do these things. It's like he knows our name. There's, there's absolute certainty in the calling. And I just want to remind us tonight that Jesus Christ loves us. And when he died on the cross, we say this, he would have died just for you. And he's... He's deliberate and purposeful in his relationship with you. Don't think that he's forgotten about you in whatever circumstances are going on in your life. We look unto him, we trust in him, and we, he's faithful. He's the good shepherd, and he'll lead and guide us and direct us. And I'm telling you tonight, he's a good shepherd, and he leads you beside still waters and green pastures. I told my father-in-law less than a week ago, in full cognizant ability to understand everything I was saying, I said, he's a good shepherd, and yea, thou walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So that was his application. And someday that will be my application. And someday that will be your application. But tonight, green pastures and still waters. And he prepares the table for us in the presence of our enemies. You know, there's a lot of enemies of the church right now. I'm sure you figured that out. He's preparing a table for us. This is not our home. We're just, we're just passing through. We're pilgrims. Then we also see the stewardship. And of course, the work and the calling is a stewardship. So he says, Aaron, he, he, twice, three times. But then he says, he shall be in charge. He shall be in charge. And then we see in verse 8, every Sabbath, he'll set it in order before the Lord continually. So you're, you're always working on Saturday, Aaron. <laughs> can, I, can I get a day off on Saturday? Can I get a Saturday off? No, <laughs> you're always, you're, you're the Saturday guy. You're the shift lead on Saturday. You, you're showbread guy. <laughs> you work for not just El Shaddai, the name that God revealed himself to your father, Abraham, but you work for Yahweh. And Yahweh says, you're working on Saturdays and you rotate the showbread. Yeah, so don't be late to work on Saturday. 
It's showbread Saturday, literally. Yeah, well, you, God, you, you struck down all these people with the serpents and all. I don't care. It's showbread Saturday. It's like your parents, hey, get to work. It's showbread Saturday. Like, well, you know, we just fought, you know, Og and Nisihon, and it's, can we just take a Saturday off from the showbread? I mean, I'm exhausted. You know, it's like fighting giants and having victory over them. We had to take the long way around the Amalekites and stuff. Hey, it's, it's Sabbath. It's showbread Saturday. You show up and you change the showbread. Many things that we're called to do in life, we don't feel like doing, but we're called to do them. We don't, we don't, if you're going to serve the Lord only when you're happy, you may never serve the Lord, right? If you're only going to go to work at Starbucks when the customers are going to treat you with respect, you'll never go back to work at Starbucks. We have a stewardship. And I've been so reminded during COVID with clarity that I have a stewardship. We have a stewardship. I have a stewardship as the primary pastor, the, the lead pastor, the teaching pastor. Sam has a stewardship. Rylan is a deacon, has a stewardship. We all, you know, Mike does security almost every Saturday. He's got a stewardship. We, and, and we all have different stewardships that are entrusted to us in part of, in what we do in this church. There are certain people who just run with the Samaritan's Purse and Operation Christmas Child, and they're, they're moving tonight. They're like, they're like bees. They're on the move, man. You can, when you get that cool morning in September, that tells you it's, it's Samaritan's Purse time. It's time for Operation Christmas Child, right? That's when you know we start moving that, and we run with it. And we all have different stewardships. And what COVID should be teaching us, even if we've lost our job and we're uncertain what's going on, is it to press into the Lord and not focus so much on what I'm not called to do, but what you do know you are called to do. That's the key. Because like Troy prayed for John, if we seek him, we'll, we'll find him. If we ask, it'll be given. If we knock, it'll be opened. So not knowing what God has for you to do during wonky COVID is not the, that the Lord's arm is short or his ears clogged that he can't hear. It's just that we're not pressing in to find that out. Now, for us, it's been a blessing at, at, here at Worship Generation because in all the inside, outside, this, that, and everything else, we've been very blessed being in Orange County. We've been blessed by being in like-minded with Shoreline. We've been able to meet outside where we wanted to. We've had so many favorable things. So really, a lot's changed for us, but we've been able to stay on point. You know, like we've kind of, you know... <laughs> Just what have I done every week? I'm just plowing through the Pentateuch. <laughs> we started Exodus with like me and Sam and Hector and Rylan in here and a DJ board. And then we got to Leviticus and we did this, we did that, we did that, we did this. And now we're finishing up. 20 years from now, someone listens to the Leviticus series, they're going to be like, wow, what was going on in Joy Brand's mind? It was so, t- I listened to my studies, I'm like going, wow, oh, that was the birds over there. No, that was the helicopter just, you know. It just, it's been so crazy, but I'm not, you know, I'm not called to go be Rob McCoy's lawyer or John MacArthur's associate pastor or Jack Hibbs cheering squad or Brian Burdison's best little buddy in the big house. I'm called as the lead pastor here to have the mind of the Lord in unity with the legal board of elders and the pastors and to work together. You know what we've called it since COVID? It's called Operation Unity. Because we've had full unity in everything we've done here. It's been Operation Unity. So when we meet here for a couple hours and we talk about masks, we're moving toward unity. But don't worry about the weather's going to change. Right? You figure something out and you get all, you work through something and then two weeks later it doesn't even matter. It's like, 
you know, like, like Roadrunner and Coyote, you know, it's like it just, it's, it's change. <laughs> it's just, but Operation Unity, because the Bible says endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit because Christ is not divided. So we're not trying to manufacture something. We're just trying to put ourselves right in the lane where it is because it's there. Christ is not divided. So that's been our work. That's been our calling. It's been our work. We'll try this. We'll try that with the, with the speaker. Then we'll try the new TV screen. We'll get better speakers. We'll try this. We'll set up the tent for the kids outside. Oops. It's a hazardous air to breathe tonight, our second week of children's ministry. Let's go in the cafe room. Okay. Well, now let's go back to the classrooms. Like, we're all, what are we learning? Flexibility and just flexibility and just trying not to get our buttons pushed. There are things that we are called to do. And during this time, for me personally, taking care of my father, do you know how hard COVID's been on 90-year-olds in isolation? It's been brutal. Life happens. You, you can't say, hey, Pop, it's a bad time to be bleeding. Because Bill's over here dying. Dad, could you wait? Like, you know, you just, it happens. You can't stop things. I mean, praying for the Timmermans this week with Elizabeth and all that she's going through, her swelling and the pictures. And Sam's like, should I send the pictures? Like, no, they're, they're hard to look at, what she's going through, little Elizabeth. They're, 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 I've seen the pictures. It's like it's shocking if that's your child and your child looks like that. Send out the prayer request. Send out the update. You know how many times I couldn't even get in to see a doctor with their kid? Like, it's crazy. But you do the best you can. So you try and go to this walk-in clinic. You try and call this doctor. You try and do that. You try and make it happen. God will show us what to do. So there might be giants out here. There might be a block path right there. But get up on Saturday and change this showbread. Right? We don't stop living and doing what we know we're called to do because so much is going on around us. It's craziness that we're not called to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, this just totally reminds me, like, hey, you know, or uh, what's been popular for the last year, right? Stay in your lane. Like, when I first heard that, I was like, stay in your lane. Like, what is that? Like, you know, is that kind of like the hookup, like some slang? Like, what kind of word? But then the more I, the more I thought about it, it's like, hey, dude, stay in your lane, right? You know, like, <laughs> and then the night drifted, like, hey, stay in your lane. It's like, oh, yeah, stay in your lane. It's like track and field, the 100. Stay in your lane, right? Get out of your lane, you get disqualified. Stay in your lane. In other words, take care of your business. And if I can say anything, and I've shared it a few times, I feel like God has really shown me when I look at this and I look at that, and I was like, don't look at that and look at this. Just stay in your lane. Change the showbread on Saturday at 10 in the morning. <laughs> stay in your lane. Do your job, because that's your calling. This is your calling. That's Jack Hibbs' calling. That's Raul Reese's calling. That's Brian Brosen's calling. That's John Randall's calling. That's John MacArthur's calling. This is your calling. From the youngest to the oldest in here tonight, we need to be reminded that there is a work and a calling that is our lane. And that work is not meaningless. It's the workmanship. And the calling and the work go together in Jesus' name. Change the showbread on Saturday. Stay on target. We have to stay on target. Now more than ever. So we seek the Lord like we prayed for John. As we seek, knock, and ask, God will show himself not only to John, but to all of us for what he has for us. And I will say this about this stewardship and what we're called to do. 
And I've been, you know, we've touched on this in Leviticus a few times, but that responsibility and accountability, we talked about the minus where the two gets four and five gets 10 and Matthew 25 where Jesus taught on that accountability. But one thing I, I, I didn't really mention in some of this stuff, because I talked about Ivan Prokhanov quite a bit early on during COVID, the, the Russian pastor who was used so mightily under the czars by the Lord and then under the Bolsheviks, the communists by the Lord. He was persecuted by both. And he, he accomplished so much, probably more than any one person ever has under one national ethnic group in their lifetime for the Church of Jesus Christ. It is amazing, his, his life. It's called Out of the Cauldron. And Debbie Research's book is like $80 online if you can even find it. But it's an incredible story. This man was incredible. But one thing as I was near the end of the book, and I've gone back and referenced a couple times, is that as he was living on the edge of like death almost every day under the czars, well, Nicholas II, and then under Lenin, and then Stalin, these guys, he escaped death so many times, but no matter what was going on, he would always end the day with a clear vision of what the next day looked like. He, he, he would have a plan, like, what, what, are, the, what are the things I'm doing? And, and what he was driven by is task and purpose as opposed to just putting in eight hours or ten hours at work. He's very task-driven. If you study people that are very successful and make a lot of money or have great ideas, they'll tell you it's really about being task-driven as opposed to just working eight hours. The great basketball coach, John Wooden, used to say, there's just a point where practicing free throws is no longer a benefit to you. It's not about working hard. It's about working efficiently. And it's not just like, like a cog in the wheel for eight or ten hours doing something meaninglessly. It's about being task-driven and being efficient and effective in what you're called to do. That's what Ivan Prokhanov said. So as he published all these documents, as he worked with legal people from the central government and took that news out into the far eastern parts of Russia to support people who have been thrown in jail for their faith when the laws allowed them to have their faith at certain times, he was always on task, on point. What's the work? And that work for Ivan Prokhanov was always his calling. And he, like I said, he died in Berlin in 1935 as in exile from Russia and when he died in exile, he had a 10, point bullet, 10 bullet points of what he saw for the future of the church in Russia going forward at the end when he foresaw the, the collapse of communism because he knew it would because it always does when he saw its collapse. Of course, he never got to see it. But he died in faith, right? And isn't that how we want to go? Don't you want to die in faith with what you're going to do tomorrow written down for the kingdom, your work, your calling? I mean, that's a good way to go. I mean, Billy Graham, when he's 99, he reached more people than any other time in his life when he did that on TV crusade. Who reaches more people when they're 99 than when they're 49, especially Billy Graham? But he did. So the stewardship, the work, hey, Saturday, what is Saturday? It's showbread Saturday. Change the showbread on Saturday. Stay on point. Don't let all this wonkiness, just don't lose your way. And the last thing we see is he says that on the back end, the bread, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, the bread. And they shall eat it in a holy place, verse 9, for it is most holy to him with offering the Lord. Isn't it interesting that when we do the work and we fulfill the calling, it's actually our bread. Jesus said, I have food that you don't know of to the disciples, and my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And he goes, I always do those things that please my father, and the work you sent me to do, father, I've finished the work. He actually called his calling unto the father as his food. Now, Jesus said, you labor for food that perishes, but you should labor for, you know, food that's not perish. Like, we need daily food, and we need daily sustenance, but it's the eternal from the practical. 
all the practical things we have are just to set us up to do the eternal things we're called to do. Or as the great Elizabeth Elliot, now the Lord, said, we don't live to eat, we eat to live. And there's a huge difference between the two. If you live to eat, you're driven by carnal appetite. But if you eat to live, God's your provider, and he's taking care of you practically so you can be equipped to do the things you're called to do spiritually. Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, Glad Surrender. In our fulfilling our calling, God will always meet our needs. That showbread he changed on Saturday, hey, it's showbread Saturday, guess what? What was the end of the day when it was done? You're taking home the showbread. What was it saying in Second Thessalonians? If a man doesn't eat, it doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Like you, you do your job, end of the week, you change the showbread, guess what? Pack it up. That's your bread. It's your bakery. Talk about a great personal bakery, too. You walk out of the tabernacle with the showbread, call the boys over. When we do the work, which is the calling that we're created for, God will always meet our needs. For as it says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor is the sentence begging for bread in the gates of the city. He will always meet our needs. And I would also point out, too, that it's a holy thing. And this is the last thought I have with this. So the provision came in the calling. Did you catch that? I mean, you see that. His provision came from his calling. As he fulfilled his calling, he had the provision. But He was blessed with the provision. It's like you put in the, you know, the payroll periods every twice a month, and it follows like the cycle. And, and there it is. The provision was in the calling, in the work, and it will always be. God will always meet our needs. He, will, he may not meet our luxuries, but he will certainly always meet our needs. And when we're stripped of our needs and they get less and they're more simple, it seems like our gratitude goes up. You ever notice that? So often people that are the least have the greatest amount of gratitude when they have what they have of the least. But some people, no matter how much they have, it's never enough. It's amazing. Like how many houses in Orange County are enough to own? I don't know, but for some people, it's never enough. I don't know. But for us in serving the Lord, it's a work, it's a calling. And for Aaron, it was holy, but really it's holy for all of us. Because as you think about it, the word holy, we just covered this on Tuesday as well. And we've covered it in Leviticus a couple times. It means to be sanctified or set apart. It's the character of God. So we say God is light and him is no darkness at all, morally. And God is virtuous and true and praiseworthy. There's no shadow of turnings from the Father of lights. So everything he does is good. Everything God does is good. And that is holiness. And aren't you glad that God's not evil? Aren't you glad that he doesn't, that he's not evil? That he doesn't fund evil things? That he doesn't do evil things to children? Create evil laws that make people unsafe? Aren't you glad that he's not lawless? And he doesn't take from people, but he gives? Aren't you glad that's his character? That's holiness. So when we talk about this being a holy ground where we dedicate John Fiddle tonight to the Lord, our life is a holy ground. Because the Bible says, you be holy for I am holy. So he's light, we're light. Jesus is the light of the world, we're the light of the world. And so where we go, we bring holiness. We are that holiness. We sanctify. We sanctify the campgrounds in San Clemente when we do the wedding there. It's holy ground. We sanctify this. This is just a building, but the faith and the holiness and faith is what, this is what makes it holy. 
And you and I, when we go to work in Christ's name, that's what makes us so different than someone that goes to work that doesn't go in Christ's name. They go in their name or the name of the corporation or the family name. We go ultimately in Jesus because he's called us and this is the work he's called us to do. So therefore, whether we're making lattes or sweeping the streets, it's a holy place. It's a holy meal. It's a holy paycheck. All of it's holy. It's set apart. We're set apart. No deed done as obedient act to the Lord in any job of any circumstance is less than holy. And that's why we're told in Colossians, whatever you do, do it to the glory of Jesus Christ. And then it says a few verses later, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord because you make it holy. You work a graveyard shift at a circle K, man, it's holiness to the Lord. When those truck stops along the 40 mil tonight, it's holiness to the Lord. You got to open up at Starbucks at 4 a.m., it's holiness to the Lord. You work for bosses who don't appreciate you, it's still holiness to the Lord. You work really, really hard. See, it's never in vain when we just see it as our calling, and the calling is the work. They're synonymous, they're one and the same, and it's holiness to the Lord. Everything becomes holy ground, everything becomes blessed, everything becomes set apart. Whether you're saying goodbye to someone you love, it's holy ground. You go back a couple days later, he's gone. It's just the room for the next person that's coming in. But when you're preparing for Jesus, it's holy ground. We're holy ground. You're holy ground. You're holy ground. You're holy ground. You're holy ground. I'm holy ground. The woman of God, the man of God, who's born of the Spirit, becomes holy ground. And the calling and the work make us holy ground. So where you go, bring the light. Sanctify it. Do it as unto the Lord, and it will never, ever be in vain. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, you know, it's so frustrating when you work hard and you just don't know how it's going to play out and you don't get to see who spends your money that you leave behind and they probably waste it. And he goes, so the conclusion of the matter is this. Work really hard because God gave you that work. Do it as unto the Lord and enjoy the bride of your youth. Enjoy the good things he's given you and enjoy life while you're here and now. That's what he says. That's pretty much the summary. And to fear God and obey his commandments is the full summary. So, before we pray, let me just remind you tonight, WG. Jesus is always north. And he knows us by name. And we need to change the showbread. We need to know what our, what our job is. And he'll tell us. And we need to keep doing it, no matter what's going on around us. And we need to do it with passion and purpose, even as the cross has passion and purpose. And bring holy ground to that place. Bring holy ground to the task as unto the Lord and let it shine for the Lord because then you're gone. And I said this before, you know what happens when you're gone? Your stuff gets packed up in boxes. And then people got to go through those boxes. And they decide what they want to keep from those boxes. And stuff they don't want to keep, you know, it ends up at Sabres. I got stuff I'm dropping off tonight at Goodwill. That's what happens. Or if there's photo albums, incredible photos from the 20s. You know what they end up? They end up with the grandson, and then grandson goes into convalescent care, and they end up with the great-grandson, which is me. You go, it's boxes. And when I said to Bill George, Jesus is coming for you, you know what he said? Do I need to pack anything? No. No, you don't, Bill. 
It all gets left behind. You know what he did? He smiled. And he said, not even my belt? Nope. You don't need your belt, Bill. It all gets left behind. You don't do anything, but wait on the Lord. He's coming right here. Now, they're not going to see him when he comes, but you're going to see him. That's my image. And by the way, I'm the last one that saw him with his eyes open. And he was like this with me. And I said, if Jesus doesn't come tonight, I'm coming tomorrow. But I think he's coming tonight. And so it will be with each one of us in this room. It's the author and finisher of our faith. It's wonky out there. Stay on point.